two weeks ago, we visited the first four chapters, or the first four verses of this chapter. We explored the two main interpretations of this event, of this event that the sons of God were of the godly line of Seth, and that they sinned by marrying the daughters of men who were of the ungodly line of Cain. And then the other view that we looked at was uh, the one that we spent quite a bit of time exploring was that the sons of God were these heavenly beings who, um, as uh, Jude says, didn't keep their proper domain. Um, They left their proper station. And as Peter says, were disobedient in the times of Noah. This uh, event is also essentially universally testified to in the ancient world um, uh, by by the, the pagan ancient world in some form or another. And I uh, incline towards uh, the latter view here. I think that that's um, probably the strongest case, uh, considering all of the the extant data that we have. But nestled in the the description of of this enigmatic event of these the first four verses um, in verse three, God makes this pronouncement. He says, "My spirit shall not strive with man forever." For he is indeed flesh. And um, I, I actually think that that pronouncement reads more smoothly with the Sethite view. Um, if we read the sons of God as being just simply righteous men who sinned by marrying unrighteous women, it makes sense for God to make a pronouncement against them. But if we believe that the sons of God are angels from heaven, it, it initially seems kind of more awkward. It, it seems more um, like it's, it's interposed in, into the text. Um, but uh, what we do know is that it clearly is a pronouncement against the sinfulness of men. And so uh, let's, how can these things be harmonized? How can, how can they both be true if we, if we assume that the fallen angels view is true, that the sons of God are fallen angels? And these, this pronouncement against men, um, what, what's going on here, essentially. And I think that the best way to explain this or to harmonize it, um, and I'm not, this isn't a hill that I would die on, but I think we can, we can see it as um, the sin of men giving their daughters away to the sons of God, it, these forbidden marriages. So I actually think that the pronouncement against men... Uh, involves that, uh, that sinful uh, arrangement. I, I, I think that God is holding the brothers and the fathers accountable um, for that, those kinds of uh, uh, pervert, per, perverted celestial marriages or however you want uh, to describe them. Actually, I don't, even, I don't think they're marriages. I think it was just, um, I guess, some strange kind of fornication. Um, and, uh, I mean, you have a similar thing. And we, we've talked about this. We had the similar thing in Sodom because the, 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 uh, the men of Sodom were sinning by wanting to have sexual relations with the, the angels who visited Lot. So, um, it's obviously not the same thing there because it, it isn't necessarily the men who are, um, uh, sexually sinning. But I think they're sinning in a similar way that Adam is. Adam sinned by standing by 
while this son of God, this serpent, the, Satan is, is, is uh, among the sons of God in Job, and Adam is standing by while the son of God comes to Eve, and he, uh, he deceives her, and, and he tempts her. <laughs> And, uh, and he tempts her with some forbidden fruit. And so I think, uh, I mean, it's all speculation here, um, but I think that there, it's probably a similar kind of thing. It's probably a similar kind of uh, abdication of responsibility to protect women um, that, that God is making this, that this pronouncement against men is nestled in these uh, first few verses. So that's, that's my take on it. I, it's, it is... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of all the all the data, all the biblical, um, uh, all of Scripture, and bringing it to bear on this um, strange pronouncement. So, um, but what we can say with certainty is that it is a pronouncement against men for their wickedness, even if we don't really know uh, what the exact nature of their wickedness was. We do know. Verse 5 says that the wickedness of man was great and um, that the intent of uh, thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So there's more explanation of, of what his sin was, just a, a mind which is constantly set on evil. Uh, in another, uh, I guess, passage that sheds light on what's going on here, um, in is Jesus in Matthew 24. Um, he says that in the days before the flood, which is where we're at here, he says they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. So it, the, that could be a reference to um, the fall of the watchers. Um, but it, it could also just be um, legitimate marriages. Until uh, the day that Noah entered the ark. Matthew 24, uh, verse 38. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that is essentially the most light that we can, we can shine on what's going on here. It's not, it's not a whole lot of uh, explanation. But in response to this increased in worldwide wickedness, God says in verse 3, uh, My spirit is uh, not going to strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Uh, the Spirit of God strives with wicked men for a time, but after a while he stops. The Spirit of God is gracious, but he's also just. When Adam and Eve uh, sin, he excommunicates them. Uh, he curses the ground. He curses them, but he also um, he, he gives them a covering for their sin, and he also gives them children. When Cain sins, he excommunicates him from Eden, but he also gives him a mark to preserve his life. Even though man had been separated from God uh, through Adam and Eve, Enoch is still able to walk with God. And even though God gave humanity over to a cursed ground and a toilsome existence, God gives Lamech a son named Noah, whose name means rest, because uh, Lamech says of his son Noah, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands 
because of the ground which the Lord has cursed, Genesis 5.29. And how did he comfort them? How did Noah comfort uh, the antediluvian world? Well, Noah preached righteousness. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter 2.5, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so, the Spirit of God, speaking through Noah, was calling the world to repentance and to get right with God, but only seven people listened, his family. The rest of the world remained in their wickedness, and so we see that the Spirit of God is always at work in wooing men to himself and calling them to repentance and holiness. And this is what I believe is indicated by the Spirit striving with man. But at some point, his grace ends. At some point, he brings wrath. He is, after all, a just God. He is a gracious God, but he is a just God. He executes judgment on the wicked, on the wretched. But even here, he doesn't do it immediately. He delays for 120 years. Twelve decades till doomsday. And even though he is sorry for having made man, he preserves a man and his family through this wrath. Now we're, now we're, we're told that the Spirit of God doesn't strive with men uh, forever because he is indeed flesh. Verse 3 again. And that's a strange kind of uh, addendum there at the end, uh, uh, this, this phrase, he is indeed flesh. I, when I first read it, I just thought that that was, that was strange, for he is indeed flesh. Um, but if you think about it, the Bible uh, does not have good things to say about the flesh. And he uses the flesh in many different ways. And I think you can essentially... Uh, boil it down to unregenerate man, to the sinful nature of man. Paul says in Galatians 5.17 that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. So you have two competing desires, the desires of the Holy Spirit, the desires of God, and the desires of the, the flesh of men, and these are at war. With one another. So, Paul says in the, in the preceding verse, walk by the Spirit so that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. As Christians, as those baptized into Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are capable of walking by the Spirit, but it is still a war and we must continually be putting to death the flesh, the old man, the Adam in us, and submitting our bodies, our flesh, to the Spirit. And as much as you hear the voice of God and receive the law of Christ and obey, you are acting in accordance with our supernatural purposes, the way that God has intended us to be uh, human, the way God created us to be. But, Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive those things which belong to the Spirit, and that they are foolishness to him. The natural man rejects these things. The unregenerate man cannot 
comprehend them, cannot abide them, cannot receive them. And so the natural men in the antediluvian world, they did not receive the things which belonged to the Spirit. These fleshly men were opposed to the Spirit, not unlike the world that we see today, not unlike even most Christians that we see today when you present them with the truth of uh, all of Christ's gospel, even the difficult uh, bits, the Sermon on the Mount, loving your enemy, uh, blessing those who hate you, divorce and remarriage. Most of the church has fallen into a gross heresy of divorce and remarriage, and it is largely resisted. It is marginalized. It is viewed as not a not even a, a very important issue. It's this tertiary issue, and that's because the flesh is opposed to the spirit. And these men have really suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. They have resisted the spirit in their flesh. And so uh, we see the same, and I would, I would say, even though things are bad now, it was worse then, which should be a comfort to us. There, there, are, there are faithful, there are more than seven faithful Christians, eight faithful Christians on the earth now. That should be a comfort to us. Um, there are other Christians out there who believe the full gospel of Christ. We are small and we are a remnant, but, but we are out there. But the antediluvian world and their sinfulness and their unwillingness to receive the things of the Spirit, we're told, grieved the Lord. God was grieved in his heart in verse 6. He was sorry that he had created man. And this is a difficult passage. These are, this just gets into a lot of uh, really difficult um, concepts. But uh, I'm, I'm not persuaded that this means that God um, didn't see this event coming. I, I believe that God is omniscient. I believe that he knows all things. Um, Isaiah says that uh, God declares the end from the beginning. And the psalmist says that God knows what he's going to say before he speaks it. Psalm 139, 4. Uh, Isaiah 46.10 is the, is the reference um, to God declaring the end from the beginning. God knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows when a bird falls from the sky. Matthew 10. And he even chose the elect in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. In short, God knows all things, and John tells us this in 1 John 3.20. And yet, this God, the God who created everything, the God who knows all things, the God who declares the end from the beginning, he's grieved when he sees this. He's grieved when he sees the world rejecting his spirit, the world succumbing to the flesh, walking in their wickedness. And I, I really think the, the way to, um, I, I don't need to trot out how these things are paradoxical. Uh, these are well-worn arguments that, that Christians um, have, have been, Christians and pagans have been uh, debating for uh, thousands of years. And I think the, the, the easiest way, the simplest thing to do here is just to affirm that both things are true. God knows everything that's going to happen. 
And he was genuinely grieved when he saw this. We can take the Chestertonian route and simply affirm the mystery of it. Uh, he talks about the, the, the normal man, the man on the street is fine with, with taking the two true apparent contradictions. And uh, I think we should uh, be fine with that as well. It's a mystery. It's a paradox. And that's okay. That is fine. And it's, it's even more mysterious when we read uh, other verses like Numbers 23, 19, which, which specifically said, says, uh, and I quote, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. <laughs> so it seems at face value that God's changing his mind here, but I don't, I don't think that that's what's going on uh, in, the, in the Genesis passage. Uh, Numbers 23 specifically says that God doesn't change his mind. So I think we can affirm that what is meant in the Genesis passage isn't that God was taken by surprise, and it's not a commentary that limits his omniscience, but rather it's a passage in Genesis which is meant to convey that God does truly grieve over sin, that it is hurtful to see his creation, his children, ruining themselves. Any parent wants the best for their children. And they would experience similar displeasure if they were to witness their children depart from the ways in which they had raised them or started engaging in some kind of self-destructive pattern. Another example which, is, which has been helpful for me, um, I don't think it's going to be uh, satisfying to, to everyone, but uh, just consider a favorite novel or a favorite film uh, that, that you really enjoy, one that is uh, compelling, one that is powerful, um, and one that even uh, might cause you to uh, cry at some point. Now, um, have you experienced those emotions? Have you experienced that joy, that terror, that suspense, that delight, that sorrow um, in watching these things a second time? or a third time, or a fourth time? Uh, have you experienced these emotions even though you knew how it ended? You knew the end from the beginning. I have. I've, I've experienced, and in, in, in some ways, uh, let's say I haven't seen a, a movie or read a book in, in a few years, and I go back and I revisit it, because I have um, grown um, in my knowledge, in my wisdom, in my sanctity, in the Lord. In some ways, I have uh, the theosis, to use an Eastern Orthodox term, the, I have become godlike. I actually may experience those emotions more intensely because I, I understand what's going on in a, in a richer way, in a fuller Sense And so I'm, I just bring this one example up to simply uh, try to point out, rather than omniscience, God's uh, exhaustive knowledge dampening his emotional uh, reaction, his investment in what's happening temporally, his interactions with men, I think it, it, it actually enhances it. It can, it can fully enhance it. Um, 
So, uh, those are those are uh, a few things, a, f- a few of my thoughts on it that have that have kind of helped me. And and perhaps you know these suggestions aren't going to satisfy uh, you know everybody, particularly more inquisitive or philosophical minds that that might be listening uh, or here. Um, but there are plenty of resources out there that delve deeper into these seemingly paradoxical concepts uh, revealed to us in Scripture. Um, and you can look up those things if you want. They're, uh, I, I consider myself uh, a, in the Calvinist, uh, Calvinistic Augustinian tradition, which is fine with um, affirming the, the exhaustive knowledge of God, but also affirming free will in, in certain respects. And uh, it's just called the compatibilism sometimes. Um, but if you don't like that, you can look up Molinism and middle knowledge, or you can look up open theism, which essentially denies that time in the future exists. So God is omniscient, but if time in the future doesn't exist, you don't have these problems. Um, some other uh, things that you can look up is the impassibility of God, um, God's divine simplicity, his aseity. Uh, I just bring these things up because they are uh, concepts that men who are definitely more philosophically oriented and, and theologically precise um, uh, have written lots about, and uh, you can pursue those things on your own. And I, I just bring these up as suggestions that you can use as a springboard to further understanding of God in Scripture. However... I would also send you on your way with this warning, and I say this from personal experience, that it is good to pursue these things. It is the glory of kings to to seek out these mysteries. Um, But much of it is trying to grasp at things which are beyond our ability to fully understand. And so I think that the sooner you can really come to grips with the fact that a lot of this is mystery and that um, the full revelation of these things have not come to us and they probably won't come to us until we're in our resurrected state. Uh, I think you'll be more satisfied. You'll be able to, as Chesterton says, rest your head in the heavens. Um, And if you're not satisfied with the mystery of it, you try to fit the heavens in your head and it's your head that eventually cracks so I'm trying to spare you from frustrating your own mind to such an extent that you uh, really become uh, irritable and um, very unsatisfied. Uh, so um, I exhort you to learn the contentment of a poetic mind and a submissive heart, and in time, in the resurrection, more will be revealed to us. So, after God sees the increase of wickedness throughout the earth, he declares in verse 7 that he is going to end the world. He is going to destroy all of it, even the animals, all flesh. It is all going down. And this is interesting and informative because it shows how our sin affects those who are under our dominion. If you remember, God gives Adam, he gives mankind dominion over creation, over Uh, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field. These things were given to Adam as uh, Adam was the covenant head of creation. 
And when Adam sinned, uh, the, the land was cursed. And when uh, his progeny began to sin more uh, aggressively and boldly, all of earth becomes cursed in that God destroys everything. But Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord in verse 8. Noah finds favor. And because of this, so in one instance, you have the sin destroying all the world, but Noah's faithfulness, you have the salvation of his wife, his sons, their wives, and two of every living animal, verses 18 through 19. And this is how covenantal arrangements work. This is how uh, unfaithful covenant arrangements work, and this is how faithful covenant arrangements work. And God says in verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. And in this covenant, all of these things under his authority, they were all brought into the ark. They were all saved. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, they were all saved uh, indefinitely. Um, you have people who are saved. I mean, as we, you'll see in a couple weeks, Ham is saved and then he sins. Um, and you and he's and his son is cursed. Or you have uh, the the Israelites saved out of Egypt, and yet God was not pleased with them, and many of them perished in the desert. So um, I'm not going to get into all of that, but I think a, a way to really help all of help those distinctions is uh, covenantal election and decretal election. Um, but I'm not going to I'm not going to get into all that now. So verse nine tells us that Noah walked with God, and remember we're told that Enoch also walked with God. Enoch was Noah's great grandfather, so Noah was a righteous man like his great grandfather who walked with God. And when we walk with someone, you meet with them, you talk with them, you're in relationship with them. And when we walk with God, God tells you what He's going to do. He even told Enoch that he was going to execute judgment on the apostate men who crept into the church in the first century, as Jude tells us in Jude 1.14. It's, it's a weird thing. Why would Enoch prophesy of something that was going to happen in, in uh, such, a, such a long time in the future? But he says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Uh, prophesied about these men, those were the false teachers who crept into the church, in the first century. And that, uh, yeah, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And similarly, God tells Noah about the future judgment. He tells Noah that he is going to destroy all flesh because all flesh had corrupted their way, verses 12 to 13. Now, just as an aside, um, God says he's going to destroy all flesh, and th that's an absolute statement, and yet uh, Noah is flesh and he wasn't destroyed, and... Uh, his wife is flesh and she isn't destroyed and the animals are flesh. You get the point. 
And, but the broader point is that sometimes the Bible speaks in absolutes, but it doesn't absolutely mean that. It's not. Uh, God says, I'm going to destroy all flesh. All flesh isn't destroyed. Uh, it says Jesus died for the world, and yet Jesus didn't die for every single individual. Because we know that some people do not enter into heaven. Jesus died for all men of all nations, and of those men of all the world, in all the nations who believe in him will be saved, and Jesus died for those men. Or when Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, um, he says, if anyone doesn't work, then they don't eat. Uh, but does that mean that if infants don't work, that they don't eat? No, there's, there's important qualifiers that have to go there. So I just bring that up because I, I, I often hear sometimes people, they say anyone or whoever or whatever. And that is, it's important to bring all of scripture to bear on, on these things. Um, so I leave that with you. But... Back to God warning Noah. God warns Noah that all flesh was coming to an end, that he was going to bring destruction to all men, except Noah and his family and all the, all the animals that came to the ark. And, uh, and, and with these exceptions are the, the flesh that God grants salvation to. And how does he do this? How does he save them? How does he uh, save Noah and his family and the animals, the creatures? Well, he saves them through his word. The word of God instructs him on how to escape that judgment. He tells him to build a vessel and to enter this vessel, the ark, which would withstand the judgment of God. So the word of God comes to Noah and it is salvation to him. He warns Noah ahead of time before this judgment comes. And this is how God interacts with his prophets. His servants, he warns them. And then the prophets turn around and they warn the people. That's the function of the prophet. They walk with God, they hear what God is about to do, and then the prophets talk to the people. God is pleased to use these intermediaries. And often the prophets are people that most other people despise. <laughs> and I think God gets a kick out of that. And uh, it's a... It's a it, it's a humbling effect. I, I would assume that lots of people really didn't like Noah. And uh, Noah uh, would be telling them these things that they thought were totally ridiculous. But the point I'm making is that God warns his He warns people that he's in communion with of what he's about to do, particularly judgment. Amos 3.7 says, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The Lord tells Abraham that he's about to destroy Sodom. He tells Joseph that there's going to be a famine in Egypt. He tells Moses that he was going to destroy Egypt with plagues. And the Lord Christ tells his disciples about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Which most evangelicals have confused with prophecies of the end of the world uh, in our future. In Matthew 24 and 21, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. 
<laughs> I mean, so he, he's specifically saying, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by areas, know that desolation is near. 40 years after Jesus says this, this happens. And for some reason, evangelicals think that this is a prophecy that's going to happen in our future. I, I, it is astounding to me. I have no idea how that happens. But we need to remain gracious and patient and kind with our brothers. <laughs> but Jesus continues. He says, then he, he, he gives them divine warning. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. He warns them of the coming destruction. The Lord is on the side of his people, not only granting them salvation to eternal life, a spiritual kind of salvation, but he grants them real salvation from worldly distress. He separates the righteous from the wicked. When judgment comes, he spares his righteous. He brings them out which is a typological foreshadowing to ultimate judgment, which is going to happen, where the righteous are going to be separated from the wicked, and the wicked will be destroyed. And this isn't to say that the righteous don't suffer distress in the world. They do. And in Matthew 24, Jesus actually, he compares what is about ready to happen in Jerusalem to uh, the days of Noah, the antediluvian world. In Matthew 24, uh, verse 36, he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the son of man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house has known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, this could very well be about Jesus' second coming. I don't, I don't deny that, but I do think that the primary application is specifically Jesus' coming in judgment on Jerusalem. But this passage is usually used as a proof text for the rapture, um, which I think is, is difficult to do because uh, Jesus talks about the people who are taken away here um, being like the people in the flood, and when you were taken away in the flood, that was not a good thing. That was judgment. And so rapture people say, look, when you're taken away, you're teleported into heaven. You're beamed up. You're, 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 uh, yeah, you're, you're raptured into the clouds. But the people who are taken away here uh, are taken away in judgment like they were in the flood, so I think that that's a problematic 
uh, rendering of that passage. But it makes sense when, you, when it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. People who were taken away in Jerusalem uh, were destroyed. But whether it's about Jesus' judgment on Jerusalem in the year 70, or about his second coming, or perhaps both, which I actually think that that's what it is, I think it's, it's, it's about both, uh, we need to be ready. We need to be ready like Noah. Because like Noah, we're living in a time which is marked with incredible wickedness and violence, and people having a good time, people eating and drinking and, and marrying and, and giving in marriage. And we, like Noah, are being ignored. Like Noah, we're being mocked. Like Noah, we are obeying God and we're preaching righteousness. Like Noah, we look crazy. Even to, the, even to most of the church, we look crazy. Noah was uh, the ultimate doomsday prepper. But... He was right. He, he wasn't doing uh, his doomsday prepping out of paranoia or the fear of men. He was doing it out of faithfulness and fear of God. And that is our position. We are the ones that have no fear of men because men can only kill the body. But we fear God because he can kill both the soul and the body in hell. We are the people of trust in God, of faith in God. And Paul says that this faith, Hebrews 11:7, this faith by faith Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen because he's a servant and a prophet and God uh, tells his prophets what he's about to do, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Noah entered into Christ, symbolized by the ark, and went through the baptism of the flood. Augustine in the city of God, the rest of our chapter has quite a bit to do with uh, the construction of the ark, and it tells us its dimensions and things like this. And Augustine in the city of God, when he talks about the ark, he, he believed that the very dimensions of the ark uh, symbolized that of a human body of Christ um, and that the ark itself symbolized the city of God, the church sojourning in the world, which is rescued by the wood on which hung the mediator of God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. He believed the door on the side of the ark signified the wound, which was made by a spear on the side of Jesus and that the three stories, the three levels on the ark represented the world being replenished by the three sons of Noah. But then he even gives multiple interpretations of this. He's like, yeah, well, maybe it's, maybe the three stories mean the three graces which are commended by Paul, faith, hope, and love. Or maybe it means, at the very bottom, chaste marriage, because he believes that married Christians are lesser brethren. Or the middle story, it's chaste widowhood. Or the very top story, chaste virginity. <laughs> He believed Noah was ordered to make the ark out of squared timbers, which he believed symbolized the immovable steadiness of the life of the saints. For however you turn a cube, he says, it still stands. The church fathers would get very imaginative in their, 
interpretations of the Old Testament. And uh, too extreme and speculative, perhaps, but I love it. I love that they saw Christ everywhere and they sought to find the fullness of the meaning in these texts. And I'm, I'm not saying that they were, they were right in all of these things, but I am commending their love for Christ and eagerness to reveal the new covenant, which was concealed in the old. And we know this. They were, they were right to do this because that's what Jesus does when he's walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He, he tells them all the things in the Old Testament concerning himself. So we know that Christ is there in the Old Testament to be revealed. So like the animals that came to Noah at the end of our, end of our text in verse 20, the animals come to Noah in order to be kept alive. And, and like those animals, we also come to Christ in order to be kept alive. We all are confronted with the curse of being an Adam, which we were reminded of on Ash Wednesday. From dust we came, and to dust we're going to return. That's the curse that we all live under as children of Adam. We're all confronted with eventual annihilation of coming destruction. But when we come to Noah and his ark, when we come to Christ and his church, we are saved from the crushing floodwaters. We are saved from the judgments of God. The fullness of Noah gave away, the faithfulness of Noah gave away of salvation for all the creatures that listened to him and that came to him. And the faithfulness of Christ does the same. But in its fullest form, Christ took upon his body the curse that was due us. And so we are crucified with Christ and we are made a new creature. We are resurrected with him. And we are no longer resigned to the fate of returning to dust. But instead, we have the promise of our bodies being reconstituted from dust, being resurrected and living and reigning with Christ for all eternity. Christ is our ark of salvation. All who come to Christ are saved. All who are in Christ will live forever. Amen. The charge is this. Preach through the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit has commanded you to preach, preach that. Preach righteousness. Preach the word of God even when the world is not listening. God knows how to save his faithful ones. He plucks them out from his judgment. He did it with Noah. He did it with the faithful in the first century. He did it with Abraham. He saves his righteous ones and he brings just wrath on those who resist his Holy Spirit. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.